Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the Large Format Photography Podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by Andrew Bartram and Clyde Butcher. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Simon. Hello, Clyde. Hello, Hello, you guys over there in England land. (laughs) It's great great to have you with us, Clyde. Okay. We're we're, we're everywhere it's warm. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's... it was it was warm until summer arrived. Uh, lovely <laughs> lovely spring, and then it stopped. Mm. So, well, you know, they say England is kind of interesting in in the summertime. It's all you know, not not rainy and foggy and right. Yeah, it's it's one of it's one of those things that I think as as photographers, you know, we can moan about the weather almost all the time, though, can't we? The light is never quite right, and the the weather's never quite right, is it? <laughs> so, no, no, I, I have to disagree. The weather the weather is always right. The only time it's not right is when you're not breathing. Well, yeah, if you're not breathing. If you're not breathing, it's not right. Yeah, but rain, shine, sun, fog. You, a good photographer photographs any time. Well, well, that told you then, Simon. I was going to say I've been put in my place right at the start. Um, okay, well let's uh, let's let's quickly move on a little bit before I get told okay. off anymore. Um, and um, uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you uh, to Dave Shrimpton uh, for being our guest um, on our last podcast, which is about a week and a half or so ago, or rather three weeks ago, when this this podcast actually goes out. And um, and I need to say thank you to Dave Shrimpton again uh, because uh, last week. Uh, on last Saturday it was, uh, we did the uh, the large format uh, virtual gathering in the woods 2020, which was uh, uh, something we ended up having to do because we couldn't gather in the woods together because of uh, COVID-19. So we did it virtually and we had uh, 23 people um, at any one time um, oh. chatting to each other. But more to the point, um, Dave uh, gave uh, a question and answer session on uh, what what he's been up to very very recently and it was excellent Mm -hmm. and also I I need to thank Kate Miller Wilson um, who also did the talk she did the first talk in there um, and uh, you know she gave a very very much a a rubber gloved hands-on demonstration uh, about how she shocks film with static uh, static electricity mm. and uh, how she actually works with that which uh, um, I mean I remember when we first saw the pictures on I think they had an article on Petapixel and they were pretty amazing then and then seeing Kate actually show us how she does it you know her technique on that was absolutely fascinating so uh, uh, Dave and Kate thank you very very much yeah, yeah. okay so uh Moving on, uh, Andrew, have you been up to anything, interest- anything interesting? Well, the most significant thing is today I actually quit my job after 38 years in the same industry and 30 in the same job. So uh, that's going to give me, well, I actually don't finish until the end of the year, but that'll give me some time to do more large format photography in the fens. So that's the most significant thing that's happened today. And I've been dabbling in the darkroom with my large format in larger, but funnily enough, printing uh, four centimeter by four centimeter uh, images from a Yashica 44 um, 127 camera. So a bit of printing and I've quit my job. Other than that, nothing exciting. That's a, it's a pretty big deal though, isn't it? So you've... It is. After all these years, yeah, working in the same industry, the electricity 
industry for 38 years and suddenly announcing that I'm going at the end of the year. Yeah. So are you planning to buy a, a big hat and grow your beard longer and take yeah, more just photographs like I want a big Stetson and a big white beard. I've already got a grey beard, but it needs to go a bit whiter like Clyde's. Well, you know, it's uh, it, it, in Florida here, the beard, the, the beard kind of keeps the mosquitoes away. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> that means you should be able to go up to Scotland more then, uh, because they have midges up there, don't they, that, uh, that, that want to yeah. bite your face off. Yeah, you, uh, in Scotland, Clyde, uh, I don't know if it's all year round, and I don't, I'm not sure if it's in all parts of Scotland, but we have these biting, small biting insects. That love to land on you and eat eat your face. So with your beard, uh, and if you smoke a pipe, I think that helps keep them away as well. Yeah. So yeah. Well, you know, some of my relatives are from Scotland. Yeah. You know the Clyde River. Okay. Yeah. The, the Were you named after it? The sailboat, the Clyde sailboat there. The yeah, it's uh, yeah. So are they from uh, sort of Glasgow area? That sort of part of Scotland. I really don't know that my my so my dad's side and their whole family are kind of like um, rednecks. Okay, well, Scottish uh, rednecks. Well, you know, actually, my grandfather, great grandfather, uh, married an American Indian, so that's okay. you know, I, she's Scottish, she's Scottish and Indian. Wow. <laughs> so you know, it's. Um, so they weren't really record keepers. My my mother's side was more record keepers. They're from England, France, and Germany. Goodness me! It's very complicated tracing. You know, in you know, Americans have got such you know wide right uh, sort of background, haven't they? In terms of from all over the world, a real melting pot. So yeah. Well, her her family helps to finance the Revolutionary War here. Okay. So they're they're from here before about seventeen hundred. Help kick the British out. We kicked them out, yeah. Yeah. Good thing too. <laughs> <laughs> oh me. So that's me anyway, Simon. So apart from as I say, being a bit uh, still haven't quite I'm not sure it's quite sunk in that I finally made the decision to leave, but you know life is too this COVID, this period of COVID um, sort of semi-isolations, I think, made a lot of people think about what's important in life, you know. And um, yeah, you know, you've got to you've got to do what's right. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about you, Simon? What have you been doing since we last chatted? Well, as of yesterday, I actually took some large format photographs. Don't believe you. I actually did it. I've, Clyde, I mean, all he does, all Simon does, is buy new cameras because he thinks that's what he needs to do. But he doesn't actually go and take any large format photographs. <laughs> well, all you do have to do is take two, one a film holder. Just at least take one film holder and expose the film holder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, go on then, Simon. I've actually, fi I've actually finally done it, and I, and it's it's worth talking about it because it was inspired um, via. Uh, Dave actually um, and quite mm -hmm. possibly somebody before that as well I can't remember but um, maybe on the uh, when we had Sveen on the show as well we might have touched upon it um, and I it's a um, a dead flower um, and it's uh, it's no longer a flower it's more of a seed head um, and it's uh, from the the Allium family so it's um, I think I think they're related to uh, to onions and things but this is ornamental you certainly wouldn't be eating the root of this thing and 
and I've seen it in the garden and more to the point it was broken the stem was broken so it's, it's a a tall uh, a tall flower a bit like an agapanthus as well that that kind of that kind of thing and a uh, single stem and it had uh, it had snapped and it was hanging down and I was thinking that looks that looks interesting and it's it seems to be like an interesting subject to to take anyway because it's not only is it dead it's broken and I was thinking well let's let's try and do something with that and try and make something of it um, so I've got a nice vase for it single vase like a rose vase and I've got a um, I hesitate to call it this but it's a, a studio setup I use it for when I have my um, photographing stuff for eBay when I'm selling lenses and uh, cameras and such and I was thinking well there you go I'll, I'll do it on a white background and I want to do it in such a way that I just get the vase and the flower and everything else is white and um, and I, so I, I set it all up and I've got a softbox and I've got an umbrella and uh, camera wise I, I wanted to use uh, my Toyo uh, but I realized that the 150 millimeter lens feels like it's welded to my Sinar uh, lens board so I, I use that instead um, and I, I metered it I used a digital camera just to check my exposure and I realized that I needed to shoot at about f22 to get the depth of field just about right but there was just no way I was going to be able to get enough light to the subject um, to actually bl uh, to blast out the background uh, to overexpose the background and uh, uh, because I could tell it just, just shooting the f22 just wasn't wasn't going to do anything for me and I'm shooting the fp4 by the way um, so I did a couple of things one I, I took the shot at at the exposure that sort of would work which is about f13 but i knew that the uh, depth of field was going to be a little bit too narrow uh, for for the shot but i thought well let's just do it anyway um and then the other one i did is i took uh two shots at f23 or f26 so i double exposed the shot uh, in the hope that um, that might actually overexpose the background um, on the two shots so I have no idea if that's going to work I'll probably develop those uh, uh, this week but since doing that um, we have a virtual meetup of our six times darkroom um, every every few weeks and we had one last night where we were trying to discuss whether or not it was safe for us all to go back or what can we do to make it safe when we go back to it and, and meet as a group in this in the darkroom and which we decided we just can't do it yet um, mm. but I mentioned what I'd done and uh, I was told that I just did everything wrong um, <laughs> with this uh, with this shot and uh, the, the most important thing I should have done was to um, have put directed more light to my white background rather than trying mm -hmm. to illuminate the object I was trying to take in the first place so uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if either of you got a, a, a view on uh, how I should have done that Oh, it's not my it's not my forte is studio work i was going to actually i was going to suggest lighting over lighting the background but that was more instinct than any, than knowledge do you do any uh, sort of studio work or well i, I can tell well, it's the same thing as shooting in a studio or shooting outside but okay. what you what you know what you can do you should have probably shot it at f45 and got into reciprocity failure when you get into reciprocity failure you get more contrast, and that white would have gone whiter. So, so you, you, have a, you, have a tri, you have a tripod, right? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So shoot it with the flash, but then but keep the nope. keep, keep the the shutter open for a period of time, and just to blast it out. 
You don't need a flash. <laughs> right, it's okay. You, just, you know, I, I've done uh, 45-minute exposures. I mean, you know, if you got a tripod, you haven't got any wind. It's no, yeah. You can do the as long as you want. Yeah, because the, the, the dark areas of the, of the flower are just going to stay as they are, aren't they? They're not going to, they're not going to burn anything out. So. Yeah. Yeah. And because and, like you say, you want to let that background just get blasted out. So the longer exposure, you can get the light, get the light on the flower you want. And it doesn't matter if the, if the light, uh, the light, the background goes really dark. Well, hap, I mean, a little white. Sometimes it goes so white, it may give you a glow on the backside of the flower. Did natural light, doing it with natural light, not occur to you? Or was it to your first instincts was to use? Uh, well, yeah. Well, I've got a, I've, I've got the setup. I've got the kit, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll use it. But I think I think mm -hmm. I'm just just sitting here with op open mouthed, thinking, oh, that that's just. <laughs> such a, such yeah. a great idea, and I'm just thinking, I'm I'm so glad we got you on the show, Clyde. <laughs> so, do, you have a, do you have a window? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, the window. Don't worry about the window. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you can use um, so you can use bits of uh, tin foil, aluminum foil, as Clyde would say, to um, you know throw a bit of light into the petals, and that helps, doesn't it? Give yeah. give some modeling to the shape of the petals that's yeah you can use, yeah, you can use that with a, the window on the right side and aluminum foil on the left and mm -hmm. the natural light fill it in lovely crunch it up good though yeah that's good yeah cause otherwise it can get maybe get too specular yeah yeah, yeah. I can I can mm -hmm. see now I'm gonna I'm gonna be back at my dad's house where all this is this this can happen I'm I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna be shooting loads of film well, um, just just try trying this out because it's it sounds excellent. Well, the the thing is that um, you just got to experiment. Yeah, I mean there's there's uh, uh, you don't you'll never find a technique unless most all the techniques that I've come up with were accidents. Accidents is where you learn. Reciprocity failure is one of the things that uh, I miss in having, you don't have that in, in digital. And what reciprocity gives you all kinds of interesting light values when you have reciprocity failure. Yes, it's something as a pinhole photographer I work with, work with constantly and, um, you know, but mainly within, within black and white materials and, but, you know, so it's it, it's a fact of life, really, for us dealing with well, lensless well, lensless I, cameras. Andrew, I'm, I'm just thinking, just for the for the benefit of those those listeners that aren't too familiar with reciprocity, would you are you able to just give a quick potted explanation on the reciprocity and what we're talking about here? Well, in layman's terms, if if you're if you're used to using a camera with normal aperture and shutter speeds on, so you know from f f let's say if it's an slr you're using and it's f16 to you know f2 or something and then you've got a shutter speed range of one one thousandth to a second then uh, there's a, a relationship between the amount of light coming into the camera and the uh, uh, and the time that the sensor film or digital is is uh, is is open and so if your exposure was one-eighth of a second or one-eighth of a second at f16, uh, then that's the same as uh, one 
15th of a second at uh, um, whatever it is. Uh, what did I say? F16 at uh, uh, F22 or something. So there's a direct relationship, uh, you know, for uh, a that, specific that's not, that's not what reciprocity failure is. I know. I know. Well, I'm just getting to that. <laughs> I was say, come on. So once, you get to, once, you get to, once you once you get once you get to times that are longer than typically a second, that relationship starts to break down. And so different right. films have different relationships. And if you go on to, say, the Ilford website, they'll give you the factors to use, right. um, which is could be something like one point what, to, to the power, one to the 3.38 or something. So you multiply the time by the reciprocity factor, or you look at the curves, or you use an app on your phone. And so one second, like for uh, FP4, might end up being two seconds, 10 seconds might end up being 30 seconds, that sort of thing. Yeah. That's pretty much right, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah the, the best way to do it is just play around with it because yeah. uh, I, I've, I've discovered that sometimes when you you overexpose a little bit, the highlights really punch out nice in the, in the landscape. I mean, it, it looks like there's sun almost if you do it right. It's it's amazing what reciprocity do. I know I was taking some pictures up in the redwood forest up in California. They were ten minute exposures, and the light meter read forty five seconds. Hmm. So the film has to have enough light to 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 get it, the, the uh, film is sensitive enough to catch the light. Now you go the other way too. You can go to Five a thousand five thousandth of a second, and you have the same problem because there's not enough light hitting the film. It's basically the film is not sensitive to the light, like uh, digital is. It's 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 a it, it's an it's a world you have to explore. Because the first time I was shooting the redwoods, I spent two weeks, and I got back processed the film. I had nothing. <laughs> I was using the light meter. So I was so upset. I took my hammer. I beat the light meter up. <laughs> Is this because you the light meter was indicating, you know, yeah, times said, in seconds, and you hadn't allowed for any additional exposure? Right, right. It said, you know, twenty seconds. So I shot it for twenty seconds. Sure. Yeah. Nothing happened. Well, I got the sky through the trees up in the sky. I got some, you know, sky. And then a load of blank shadows where the tree detail should be. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. a, lot, a lot of nice, uh, yeah, shadow area. <laughs> But reciprocity is one of the unique things that's exciting about about film. It's it's it's, it's upsetting sometimes because of the long exposures you have to do, but uh, it really creates some very interesting interesting images. If you want to, if you if you want that degree of subject move, often in the landscape, you'll get with those longer exposures, you'll get your subject movement so you'll get that sense of movement in the final image with some blurring uh, not all photographers want that though do they Clyde they would perhaps want everything to be everything to be frozen you know so well uh, that's what that's what we, in Florida everything moves yeah and I I had this one shot I worked on for nine years before I got it wow uh, it was a six minute exposure and uh, in Florida everything likes to move <laughs> everything is including moving. the alligators well, yeah, they don't bother you, though. They're nice guys. They're just trying to keep alive. 
they don't like people. They, they basically eat fish, uh, small animals, birds. Uh, some, when, when people get hurt by gators, it's usually when a guy knocks a golf ball in the, in the pond, he goes try to fish his golf ball out, and the gator thinks it's a fish and just grabs mm-hmm. his hand. Then, then he discovers, oh, there's something else in that. Let's pull it in, you know. So I knew that. Ha- I knew there had to be a good reason for not taking up golf. Well, you just leave the ball. If you see it in the water, it's the ga- it's the gator's ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fortunately, we don't have to worry about such things in the fens. Well, I don't uh, play golf. No, don't blame you. So it's it's a nice way to walk. It's a nice it takes a nice walk, but that's about it. A lot, of, a lot of great minds are wasted on the golf course. Well, we don't want to alienate too many, but uh, yeah. listeners in one uh, go. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, have, I don't have many golfing friends anyway, so I, I don't. No, me neither. I don't think we've got many okay. golfing listeners. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've broken golf clubs, and that, that's it. I don't do it anymore. Um, but um, okay, well. I've, I've just got to thank you for that uh, that that tip there. Are you going to, sorry, we're going to say something there, Clyde. Um, I, didn't, I didn't hear. Okay, so um, so I just just want to uh, thank you for that tip. Um, oh, okay. And, okay. Uh, um, well, you come to, you come to Florida, stay away from the golf courses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I was I was uh, I was talking more about the reciprocity with my with my flower, <laughs> oh, but that, uh, that, but that, that's to be honest. Like, the the tip with the golf ball was probably um, yeah, it's got more chance to save my life at least. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I one thing I very very miss in digital photography is reciprocity failure. I don't miss the long exposures. But I miss the reciprocity effect. Well, I think that's that's probably a, a good time to to ask you what you've been up to lately, um, because I know that you know you've you've mentioned digital a few times there, and um, and and digital is something that is 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 being playing an increasing part in your you know your active photography at the moment, isn't it? Well, you know, yeah, it really is. But uh, when digital was coming up. It was interesting, but the problem I had with digital in the early days was the cameras weren't very, you know, they didn't have much detail and the papers weren't very good that you print on and the inks weren't very good. And I think around 2002, three, the digital cameras start getting better and the papers and the inks were getting better. And that was my concern is having something, if you're going to have print a digital print, have it on something that will last. And I thought that was really important. And now I'm shooting, I have actually two digital cameras that I shoot with. Um, they're the Fuji GFX 100 and the, uh, the Leica M monochrome, M10 monochrome, which is, Oh, uh, just it's, it's like shooting with film. If anybody wants to go to digital, it's a black and white photographer. It's like film in the respect that you know when you shoot it, that's what you've got. When you shoot in color and then put it into black and white, you have all the kinds of opportunities to do uh, all your sliders, your yellows, your greens, your reds, your blues, the cyans, the magentas. You can do all kinds of things. But with the monochrome, 
It's just like film. If you decide you want to use a red filter, that's it. You want to use an orange filter, that's it. You want to use a green filter, that's it. In other words, you, once you shoot it, it's like a piece of film. You can do. You can go to. You can obviously go into Photoshop and burn and dodge. That's the same thing you do with film. You go in the dark room and you burn and dodge. So it's the same psychological process as shooting film. So it's it's a whole it's it's basically a new old world. It's not as sexy as your ten by eight did off though, is it? Come on, be truthful. Mm, it's a lot lighter. <laughs> my Deardorf, my eight by ten Deardorf is seventeen pounds. Huh. Uh, the lenses are you know three pounds. You know, just a whole set of gears. You know, you're carrying fifty pounds into the swamp. Yeah, that's a it's a lot of weight. I think we've we've got to be fair to Clyde. He's, he's probably earned his earned his uh, time with digital now. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, well, I, I, you know, it's it's um, it's it's really exciting and it's open, opening a lot of world for me. But again, uh, when the reason I went to film, I, I shot. I bought my first five by seven Deerdorf in nineteen seventy for a hundred bucks. Uh, Cal's camera in Costa Mesa, California, because nobody wanted large format then. They were all shooting 35, two and a quarter, Hasselblad, and they had no interest at all. This poor old camera had dust all over it. And, and I said, Can you want to get rid of that? And he said, Sure, give me 100 bucks. I said, Okay. Now the same exact camera you can pick up for about 2000 hmm. That's how much more interest there is now in film. Film is coming back like a vengeance. Um, I, I bought, I got all, I, I have, I think it's seven or eight uh, big and largers. I think the most I ever paid for one of those was 300 bucks. And now they're like, you know, there's the used ones are selling for three, four, five thousand. Uh, film is coming back. People are getting tired of. Uh, they want to learn how to shoot photograph. They, they want to learn how to how to be patient uh, with uh, with with large format. You have love to have a lot of patience and persistence to take a good photograph. And it's it's uh, and also when you go click. I think T Max one hundred right now is five dollars a sheet. Uh, my my T Max twelve by twenty is thirty dollars a sheet. Hmm. So when you go click, you know you're talking about some money. That's not pro that's not clean processing. That's just uh, you, you know just shooting it. And uh, when I was I did a, a trip around the country in two thousand six. I was going to do a uh, museum show for. Uh, St. Mary's uh, uh, University for the 400th anniversary of Jamestown. So I wanted to go across the country and fill in stuff I hadn't taken for this show called Good, uh, More America the Beautiful. I took 1,700 sheets of film in that three months. That was $25,000 in film. <laughs> it took me two months to process it. It was five half months before I saw the first print. 
that's a little different than shooting digital. You can look back at the camera and says, oh, look, there it is. So it's a whole different world. But again, actually, it was all, of that 1,700 shots, there was only about 10 I couldn't, 10 I couldn't use. But it was it's a it was a lot was of work. That, a lot of work. Cause every night you'd have to take your film holders and empty them and put them in the box, and you have to take film holders out and, and clean them and put it back in the in the little changing tent and put new film in it. So we were we were working from four thirty in the morning till eleven at night every day for three months. Got a little tiring. Was that eight by ten? Uh, it was it was it was five by seven, eight by ten, and twelve by twenty. Wow. Same film, same. We're using same film stops across <coughs> different sizes. Yeah, I use T Max one hundred for everything. Yeah. <coughs> I think T Max one hundred is probably. Uh, it's really not. It's a really a great film. The only problem is if you ever want to do uh, uh, platinum palladium prints directly from the film. It's not a very good idea because it, it takes and, and uh, uh, filters out the UV. So it's not very good for platinum plating printing. Is that just with T-Max 100? Is yes. That that's, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. All your Elford films are fine. Yeah. No problem with Elford. Right. I, I want to just, just bring it back to something else you said there um, about using the monochrome. And... Mm -hmm. And because you talked about slapping a filter on, and right. and that, that's that's in, intriguing to me because I mean I was I was having a conversation with uh, a chap called Brian from our darkroom club not not too long ago, um, and he was debating whether or not to use uh, filters on his digital camera, his color digital camera. Oh, you um, can't do that! You can't do that. Well, the camera, the camera will just neutralize it. Well, that that was the thing. We ne it never got as far to actually trying it. But the the fact is that no. you're 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 doing it though with with the, with the monochrome, which has got the you know the the, the monochrome sensor. It doesn't go. I, I'm not too sure how right. how it works, but it doesn't go through the the, the same process of no, splitting right. things into colors and things like that. Which is why you end up with a a perhaps yeah. a truer or a more of, you know something that's closer to what you might what you might expect with black and white film. And yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's the same thing as film. Yeah. So, um, what's what's interesting to me too there though is that it's it's digital, yet you're still putting a filter on it instead of trying to do something in post processing in in Lightroom or Photoshop after after the effect. Correct. Correct. You, you can't believe what the people don't really understand a lot of the uh, color digital in your different colors: your blue, your red, and your green. Like the blue, when you're using a digital camera, only 25% of the light is going to the blue. Only 25% is going to the red. And 50% is going to the green. So if you've got a 40 megabyte camera, you're only getting 10 megabytes of, sco of sky. Whole different world. Mm. And uh, with, with the monochrome, you're getting 40 megabytes everywhere. I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's just like a piece of film, Clyde. You, this, this. I'm familiar with the monochrome Leica. I remember when it was launched a few years ago, and reading about it and thinking how interesting it, it sounded. But I never really heard anybody or spoken to anybody who's, who's used it. Um, now, 
with film photography, we know that a, a piece of black and white film, mm -hmm. depending on what speed it is and who makes it, they'll all behave slightly differently. And, you know, if right. you've got some, that'll see more into the red spectrum. So with this camera, can you effectively say, I'm shooting FP4 or I'm shooting HP5 and and, the, and it behaves like that? Or is it just a sort of generic, uh, effectively a generic density curve that you get out of it, you know, like you would with it's, film? It, it's, it's actually different than film. Right. Um, it's, I don't think there's any, any film you can compare it to. Right. It's, it's a whole different world. So you don't have like a template that you say you program it and say, well, actually, this is going to be like shooting FP4. That was how. you can't you can't do that. No. Uh, and what you do is you have to shoot for the highlights. Oh right. If you, okay. if, you blow, if you blow out a highlight, it's blown. It's yeah. gone. Right. So you 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 shoot for the highlights and then you process for the shadows. So that's more like chrome or transparency film, yes. really. Yeah. Yes. I never ever shot transparency. Oh God, <laughs> I, I never wanted to be a good photographer. All I wanted to be was an artist. <laughs> That's bullshit. The people that shoot transparency are just insane. Well, we have. Um, if you listen back, if you do listen to any of our former podcasts, Clyde. Now that you've been on the show, I expect you to go away and uh, listen to all of them. <laughs> uh, we, ha we had a gentleman, uh, another YouTube uh, superstar called Ben Horn. And Ben shoots, uh, he does and two Alan or three Brock trips. as well. And Alan Brock, yeah. But I was specifically thinking of Ben because Ben does two or three trips a year m to Death Valley, to Zion. Yeah. And I've, seen, I've seen his work. And it's, yeah, it's, and he shoots transparency, yeah, mostly transparencies. Well, you can't be. All, everybody can't be too intelligent. <laughs> I mean, you, you have no. First, see, the thing is, with, with with color negative, you can work with it in the dark room. Yeah. You can underexpose it, get a different effect. You can expose it normal, get an effect. You can overexpose it, and you get. You can actually work with color negatives, and it has a has a, the much more tonal range than the slides. I mean, mm. uh, when you if you don't shoot a slide right, you've had it. Yep. You know, and it's, they're not it's, cheap, are they? No, no. And I think it's just I don't know why anybody would shoot with, with transparency. Yeah. What's wrong with you, Ben? I don't know. He's just I guess <laughs> well it's challenging, you know, I guess, you know and I've seen his film. It's it's pretty flat. You just, I mean, when you overexpose color negatives, you get some more zap to it. I mean, it's a whole different world. You can do all kinds of things. In Hollywood, they've never, ever used transparency film to photograph movies. Every movie that's ever been shot was shot with a color negative. Yep. I mean, why would they do that? Why wouldn't they shoot transparency? Because they have control. I mean, I, I just, well, well. also, see, when I was shooting color, which was back from about 1972 to 1985, uh, you could, it was hard to, they had this art, you didn't have scanners, you couldn't scan the film, so you had to use an enlarger and trying to process uh, 
in an R4, is it all R4 process? Yes, I think so. Uh, it's uh, very difficult. The Cibachrome was actually health-wise dangerous. Um, so color negative was used because I could put it in my larger and I could do all my own printing. Yeah. Now, I've, I've never, ever had anybody print my own work, my work. I, you know, you, ha you have to do your own printing to be able to get out of it what you think you, should, you want to get out of something. You have to do your own printing. And that's one thing nice about, well, people are shooting color, black and white negatives and scanning it, which I think they're losing half the battle there. But, well, uh, I do. Um, I do try and take every opportunity to encourage people to, first of all, to make a print. That's the most important yeah. thing. Uh, even my my wife, who, you know, shooting on her phone, and I said, look, and she does fortunately make prints because that's our legacy to our children and our grandchildren. Correct. Uh, and then you know, if you're really serious, then get yourself some kind of darkroom set up. It doesn't need to be doesn't need to be all singing, all dancing. It can be in your bathroom or, you know, in a yep. closet somewhere. And see see the difference. Yeah, I, so, I, I, I've made dark rooms in my garage. And what I do is uh, I had a big tank for the water goes into and have, have a sump pump that goes into the shower thing. For yeah. that, I mean, a wash machine. Yeah. So if you're, you can make a dark room anywhere you want. Just have yeah, to be my, a little creative. My, my dark room's in the garage and I don't have running water. I never have. Well, what you do is you 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 put a big get like a ten gallon uh, plastic tub, mm -hmm. put a sump pump in it, and then put that into the uh, washing machine drain. So That's you can a good use, idea. yeah. You don't have to use if you don't use a lot. Now, if you yeah. if you're doing if you're doing fiber prints, you have to use a lot of water for the wash. Yeah, I do have a I do have a sixteen by twenty vertical washer you know with slots in for washing print right. light i think you've right. got uh, but for that i take the hose from the garden through a hole in the wall and plug it in and then i have the drain running to the outside right so uh, hey, water your garden yeah. yeah the gardens probably need a little extra selenium <laughs> yeah yeah i do a bit of selenium but i think i think small amounts of selenium on the garden helps oh, Clyde, yeah. you said um We'll have to do a formal introduction in a moment, but um, okay. you, touched, you, you touched upon your color work, and when I was um, when I was doing a, reminding myself a little bit of your background and uh, things you've done in the past, um, I picked up on a on a quote, which I, I hope, to goodness sake, this is an accurate quote. Okay, and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ascribe it to you anyway. And you said that color is a duplication, and black and white is an interpretation. Correct. I think that's a good, I think it's a simple way of, of explaining it. Um, you could explain it where, where that uh, black and white's art and color is uh, decorative decor. But you, you, you hinted at some degree of tonality control in the darkroom with color. I mean, I've never, oh, yeah. I've never printed color. So clearly, clearly to say, just color as a duplication is not quite the whole truth, I guess, from what you said. But well, not... you can't you can't go too far off. Yeah, I mean, it can look pretty bad if you go too far off of the yeah. of of in the color. Um, but still, I I just don't think that uh, um, 
black and white gives you the soul of the soul of, of your what you're trying to do. It gives you color gets too confusing. Oh, the I color, agree. Yeah. The, the color work that I, the color work that I did do was very very monochromish. Yeah. I mean, it didn't have a lot of color. I mean, it was it didn't have a lot of different colors. I mean, the ones that were successful, well, not all of them, but most of them were very monochromish. But you know, with color negatives, you can burn and dodge, and just like you do black and white. But I guess the range, to to quote that well um, well trodden expression from our friend Ansel Adams about the the negative being the score. If you've got that, what we might call a flexible negative one with all the tonalities in there, right? And the the range of interpretation depending on how you're, depending on how you were either feeling at the time and what the seen invoked in you or maybe what you're feeling as you're in the darkroom can bring a whole range of interpretive results with the black yep. and white negative which probably isn't there with the color i've got all my years of photographing in black and white i have one negative as a straight print yeah and it was really good it was, it was a uh a driftwood and i used a red filter so it popped the background it was very simple, but I've got one negative. It's it's a straight printer. If people think that um, you can, you should be able to print what comes out of the camera. <laughs> you're not artists. Yeah. So I see you see comments on social media. I don't know how much you get involved in social media, Clive, but you do see comments, and I I do occasionally comment on 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 these things, and they'll say, "Well, I don't uh, do any." They're talking about light, Lightroom or Photoshop. I don't. Everything I do is all in camera, you know. And then it's true to my vision. And I said, "Hey, you know, um, the, the photographic artists of the world making darkroom prints. Do you think they just take a negative and do a straight work, effectively a work print? That that their interpretation of the image and the scene comes to life in the darkroom. And that's the same with Lightroom or Photoshop, which of course is your digital darkroom. And that's, use that tool to, uh, yeah. uh, to help you express, you know, your ideas through the medium. You think Stiglitz made, Stiglitz made straight prints? No. no, no. <laughs> I mean, uh, I get a kick out of that too. People say, Oh, you got to just do it in camera. Hmm. Well, if you want, if you want a boring picture, do it in camera. <laughs> you heard it here first folks. Well, you know, I mean, your eye can balance things out in your brain. Yeah. But the materials you have to work with don't do that. No. You have to, you have to fix the mistakes that nature made. Yep. Simon. Are you there? Simon? I'm, I am. I'm, 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 I'm thoroughly enjoying this. No, I know when he's fallen off to sleep, he mutes his microphone. No, no, I was actually, uh, my, my wife, uh, Judith, she, she brought in uh, some homemade coffee cake and a cup of tea. Oh, <laughs> so, do you want uh, to pass some over to yeah. us? Well, unfortunately, I've eaten good. it now. <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you, that's the only thing I ever drink is tea. Good. It's, it's, good. it's and, Well, and water, water. Yeah. Two very very yeah. good drinks there. No two ways about yeah. it. Um, but no, I'm 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 quiet. Apart from the fact that I was muted because I was I was eating and I didn't want to uh, disturb disturb the conversation. That's, that's okay. um, but I uh, it, it's it's just it's just one of those uh, those, those chats mm. that I'm just more than happy just to sit back and, and listen to the to the two <laughs> of you. And and I think this is this is a, a good time to do uh, what 
uh, Andrew was alluding to and uh, to uh, formally um, okay. int introduce you to the show after 45 minutes. So uh, back, back to you, Andrew. Yeah, I'd love to do this introduction. So thank you. Um, Clyde, I've been a, a long time admirer of your work, as I'm sure just when I mentioned that we were chatting to you earlier today on our Facebook group that goes along with the podcast, the large format photography podcast, Facebook group. So I've written a few pointers down here to introduce you. And I'm going to just um, uh, say these things about you. Some of these are the first one's a quote off your website. So I guess you must agree with it. Legendary, okay. legendary photographer and natural and national treasure. I guess that's you humanitarian conservationist, fine art, large format photographer, publisher of several books and wearer of an awesome beard and hat. We're very pleased and honored to have Clyde Butcher with us. Um, if you hadn't already gathered after 45 minutes to um, learn a little bit more about his life and his work and his conservation and his time um, in, uh, in the Western Everglades. So welcome Clyde. It's a real pleasure and privilege to have you on the show. Well, thank you. I think a, a large format photographer has to have a beard and a hat. Absolutely. You see, <laughs> that's what we say. <laughs> unless, unless, unless you're a woman and then you get a pass. Well, see, the problem is if, if, you, if you don't have a beard, you may have to spend all this wasted time shaving. We could yeah. be out photographing. <laughs> so, ladies, um, that's an advantage to you because you don't have to have a shave and you can spend all that extra time photographing. So, Clyde, can I ask you maybe just to um, spend some time? I think your story is probably fairly well known to anyone who knows of you. Okay. But it's an interesting tale of how you got to where you are. You've alluded to little bits of it, but maybe talk a little bit in the time-honoured way that we do with podcasts of how you got to uh, uh, well, your okay. 60 years of photographing. Well, actually, it's, it's my my first... Uh, real camera I used was a Yashica 127 film. Oh, there you go. When I, was, when I was 10 years old. That was my third camera when I was 10. Was that the Yashica 44 that I use? Yep, yep, I still Excellent. have it. I still have it. Super, super. And, well, before that was a uh, Brownie Hawkeye. Yep, I have one of those too. <laughs> I, flipped, I, flipped, I flipped the lens on mine so you get weird effects. Well, you know, you can actually still buy the 620 film. Yeah. Oh, but, I respilled uh, some in the darkroom for my 620 brownie the other day, Clyde. So I, I just took some 620 spool in the darkroom, wound it onto one spool, and then wound it back onto the other, and you're good to go, aren't you? Uh, Freestyle in California sells 620. Yeah. That's a bit expensive uh, to get it shipped to the fens, mate. Probably, too, yeah. yeah. So... Um, then, uh, when I was in, uh, I'm an architectural graduate in architecture. Yeah. When I was in architectural school, I was developing uh, my architectural model photography. And that really got me into spatial relationships. I was, uh, I was doing projects that, this was in the 60s, that, um, the first main project I did when I was a junior, um, the instructor said, this is an F or you're out of school or I'm going to give you an A. Because this sort of thing had never been done before. A photograph of the model was my architectural rendering for the project. 
So these are architects' models of developments or buildings, and you were, yeah, you were photographing them. So you, is that how you were learning? Yeah, to re- render shapes and modeling well, and lighting. Yeah, and stuff? well, and learning how. See, when in architecture, uh, one of the things that our instructors did is taught us how to see. Mm-hmm. And because you have to be able to figure out how to get someone that's walking down the street to get them into your building. So you have to be able to figure maybe an entryway that maybe works that it treat, pulls people in. So he was telling he was telling us how we see. And and I had no idea. You only see about five degrees. You realize that. Right. You don't see some people say, Oh, I see 180 degrees. No. You perceive maybe 180 degrees, but you only you only actually see five degrees. So, um, so, so you have because when you're in nature, you're scanning, you're felt, you're you're scanning nature to see it. You can't see it all at once. You have to learn how to see it. So, I, in architecture, I, I started learning. I started learning how to see. And um, at the same time, when I was in school, I was dating my wife. Uh, in you and I would we'd go up to Yosemite. I saw Ansel Adams' work in 1962 and thought that was kind of curious. Photographing nature that's kind of interesting. Most people photograph things like houses for sale, you know, it's commercial weddings, that sort of thing. Did, did you meet him at that point? Unfortunately, I never did. By the time I was really wanted to, he just went, went and died on me. Um, but cause I was always, I've always been doing my own thing. I, I mean, I, it's, I, I really didn't, I really haven't, the only, I did study, the only arch- photographers I really studied was Ansel Adams, Edward Weston, and Wynn Bullock. Yep. Well, and they're Wynn, not bad starting points. Wynn Bullock is one of those sleepers. People don't remember Wynn Bullock. He's, I thought was the most creative of actually of all three of all, all of them. I've just been reading about him actually in, um, a, a book on interviews with photographers. Yeah, he's pretty much of a space case. Yeah. Uh, he, he, was, he was a good hippie back there, yeah. Yeah. But a hippie that wore a suit. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I started photographing back in, actually in six, and I, I had a, uh, my 30, my model photography camera is what I made. Actually made it, made it, it's just, it was the size of a piece of film. I, I had I took I found a 28 millimeter uh, f 3.5 Canon rangefinder lens. And I took it to a guy and they put it in a took the, all that gizmo off and put it in a tube <laughs> with, with an X f 64 f stop in it. So I would take that little camera and set it inside the model. So but so anyhow I was photo, I started photographing. Um, with a 20 millimeter. I was the first person that had, a, I think I was one of the first people that had the first 20 millimeter retro focus lens in the country. It was a uh, Flectagon 20 millimeter. Uh, it was the first one ever built was 1961. Uh, now, Leica had a 21 millimeter, but it, was, it wasn't a retro focus. You couldn't see through the lens. So, Clyde, yeah. Simon Simon knows what you're talking about, and I'm familiar with the term retrofocus, but just oh. remind me and our other dim listeners what you're talking <laughs> okay. about. Almost every camera you buy today 
except for Leica, is the retrofocus. What what it is is that when you have in in, in S, uh, single lens reflexes, it's fifty millimeters from the flange to the film. Mm -hmm. What if you have a fifteen millimeter lens? Yeah. That means it has to be touching the 15, mirror. <laughs> 15, you have to go right through the mirror, bash that mirror up. Because yeah. of course that's what Sony did. He they bashed the mirror up. But anyhow, so what they what a retrofocus does is it actually creates the image in front of the lens yeah. and then projects it in with like a telephoto back to the film. Right. It's a really Thank you very much for that. it's uh it, it was an amazing invention. And guess guess who did it? Zeiss. <laughs> Yes. Uh, you know I'm not 100% sure about that, but it was ice because I think it might have been Ogino first. I've got... Look up Flectagon. Flectagon was made by uh, uh, Zeiss. It was uh, a German, yeah. East German company. That's right, yeah, Carl, Carl Zeiss Jena. Um, but I've, I've got it in my head, you know, that it was Ogino first. But anyway, I'll uh, I might actually well I might just look that up while we're while we're having the chat. Okay, okay. But, okay. Uh, but that's an interesting well, one. You can have that nerdy conversation on the <laughs> Classic Lenses podcast. Can't you? But anyhow, I've been shooting with wide angle since 1962. What I, camera were you using then with these um, wide angle lenses? Uh, well, I, I was borrowing. I had I bought the lens, but I borrowed the uh, Exacta from uh, the okay. the director of the architectural school. Right. Then I bought my, well, the camera I bought when I got out of school was a Miranda. You heard yep. of a Miranda? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah. yeah. You know why you buy a Miranda? All their ads have these naked ladies on them, <laughs> you know. <laughs> they were pretty <laughs> no, famous for that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, it, it, it was, unfortunately, it was a American company making cameras in Japan. At that time, the Japanese got got upset at it and they kind of pushed him out of business. It wasn't a, it wasn't a bad camera. So I used a 20 millimeter. I think I was able to adapt it. I think I had, it was a, uh, what do you call it? M49 or 30, 30, 49 mount. Yeah. So I've put that uh, Leica in the reflectagon on the uh, Miranda with that uh, amount. So uh, I did a lot of photography with that. And then I think uh, about maybe a year after I graduated, I uh, I got a, a, a Hasselblad Superwide, and then I got that Mamiya Press six by six by nine with a fifty millimeter. That was I really enjoyed that camera. It was really a neat camera. Uh, took fantastic pictures uh, and. Uh, the 50 millimeter on this on the six by nine it was a really nice angle mm. and then uh, i did that and it, uh, i started a company uh sell a, a, re, a, a wholesale company selling photographs called i encounter and, a, and we had a, a display in a furniture mart in los angeles to, you know to sell that was in 1970 or 70, 70, 70, 71. Or, what, what were you selling there, Clyde? Was uh, that pr prints of pretty black, scenes and your 70 yeah, prints and stuff? No, no. Black, but 
I never did figure out if you have a photograph. It took me a long time to figure out a photograph of Yosemite. But it was mostly uh, uh, driftwood, sand dunes, okay. sailboats, uh, coastal stuff, California. So you had almost um, like a little pop-up stall or stand or area within no, the store? No, no. We had a – we had well, we built like uh, 30-inch cubes. Okay. That were cubes, and there were three of them, and then we'd put the prints on. We had three or four of these cube stands yeah. in the showroom. Right. Okay. It was the actual showroom. We sold to uh, uh, decorators. Um, oh, I see. Yeah. Um, industrial stuff mostly because yeah. photography was not uh, not a big thing in 1970 I mean a 20 by 20 frame print I think retailed for $90 you know so then uh, I think it was about 1972 uh, actually it was about 1971 that I decided that I wanted to go to color and two and a coke two and a quarter color for making large, I wanted to make large color prints and two and a quarter wasn't really very good. The film back then, uh, the process for developing the negative film was C22 and they weren't that sharp. So I figured that's when I bought my five by seven camera so I could shoot larger format film to do big color prints. Why did you want to move on to color? Was it a purely sort of commercial decision at the time as yeah, to what it yeah. Well, you got the shag carpets, you had the gold couches, <laughs> yeah, you had the okay. avocado, avocado yeah. refrigerators, you know, yeah. I mean, golly, you got to have earth tones. <laughs> so it was basically survival of, of I, I, I just wanted to survive. and I wanted to be a photographer. I wanted to be in nature. Yeah. And then uh, that was doing pretty good. Those were all original prints that I, I printed in the darkroom. Uh, I did. I did sixteen by twenty. My first start. I did sixteen by twenty prints in trays. Mm-hmm. I could process fifty sixteen by twenty color prints at a time in a tray. How many? Fifty. Really? Yes. What, do were you just sort of moving them constantly, yeah. one above the other, and shuffle? yeah, shuffle, shuffle them? But see, shuffle it was it was, it was the developing time was twelve minutes. Yes. So we had plenty of time. The whole process took an hour to the trays. There was nine trays. <laughs> the last tray was formaldehyde. Goodness me. These were, these were not fiber. These were fiber prints. These were not RC prints. This is before RC came out. Yeah. <laughs> when, you, when RC came out, it was too sticky. You couldn't do that. They were too sticky. Right. Uh, so we got a, a Nord processor. Do you remember the Nords or no? Oh, no. it's a, it's a processor, uh, kind of like a like a creonite, but but you had a leader that you led through of the machine, all these all these uh, tanks, and you clipped the leader on so you would you would process two hundred and seventy five feet of colored paper, and you clip the leader on you, and it would run the the paper through the machine. Okay. Uh, and hopefully you catch the back end of it, <laughs> or you really got problems. Uh, you have to redo the whole, leave the whole thing. So then I bought a, um, a I think it was a creonite for uh, forty inch paper. 
So we're doing 40 inch original prints. And then we were, we were doing okay. We were selling a little bit. And then we said, you know, we, we actually talked to Spencer Gift about putting in uh, work in the, in the, in the, in the, they were looking for something in their front window, their front wall to bring people into the store. So I said, what if we make you like 20 inch by 50 inch color framed photographs with a clock mounted on it called a picture clock? And they tested it out and it was really successful. Uh, we ended up getting um, Pennies, Wards, Sears, Spencer Gift, Spiegel's, Esnich Green Stamps, uh, Mobile Oil. Uh, we actually had some of our photographs on the back of Cheerio boxes. So I've sold about every way you can sell a photograph. That was the 70s. And then we um, sold, because that was all landscape stuff. Mostly uh, sunsets, redwood forest, some sailboat stuff. Uh, and then... We sold the business. I came to Florida, and I was tired of shooting landscape. And we we had bought a little we had a little little sailboat we brought to Florida, and we sailed around Florida for three months. <laughs> and then when I I got we got back from that sail trip, um, there was four of us on this twenty foot boat that I built, <coughs> and. I, I just, I, I went, uh, for some reason, Salvador Dali had a museum, just opened up in <coughs> 1982 in St. Petersburg. And I went through that, and I was getting kind of excited about doing something really kind of weird. Not that he was weird or not, but uh, so I had this idea. You, you're familiar with Jerry Yulesman, right? Who's sorry? Jerry Yulesman? Nope. Oh. I sound like I should be, but carry yeah, on. He was basically uh, kind of the first Photoshop guru without Photoshop. Okay. He would take uh, four or five images, black and white, and put them together on a piece of paper, you know, uh, make a, create, create an image with these four or five. He, he'd have, he had seven, seven larger setups in his darkroom. Right. We'd set okay. seven different negatives up, and he would create these images. So I wanted to, of course, I was shooting color, so I had to do something in color. So I did some, I called outer space stuff. Uh, they were multiple images with uh, the earth in it, the moon in it, uh, birds. Yes. I've uh, seen some, I've seen some of those. Uh, yeah, uh, not, yeah. not, not today when I was looking at your work, but I remember seeing yeah. your yeah. space, space stuff. stuff. Yeah. So, so like I got that out of my system, <laughs> and then I got excited about. Uh, then I decided to go back and photograph again. So, I started photographing uh, Florida in color. Uh, the beaches were first because that was typical. Because you know I've been photographing Hawaii and California. And mm -hmm. Beaches were you know that's that's sellable stuff because we were interested in making a living. Yep. So. I did that, and then I think it was 1984, 
I discovered the uh, inner enters of Florida, the swamps. And I started. Then I started for only about I think about only about two years. I photographed the interior parts of Florida, and I was doing art shows, doing really well. Um, last show I did in color, I think it was, it was in. Uh, March of 86, I did $18,000 on the weekend. Not too bad for an art show <clears throat> in 86. Now, the people who were doing black and white, uh, their sales ran from $300 to $500. And, but I was saying to myself, you know, I, you know, I really would like to get back into black and white, but I still like to make a living. <laughs> and my wife at the same time, was she was doing hand-colored she would take her pictures of black and white and we'd make prints for her and she would hand paint them. So say we're kind of like the old fashioned, yep. you know, colored prints. And then in, uh, on our anniversary, June 15th of 86, our son was killed in an automobile accident by a drunk driver. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, well, I want to go back to my roots and get back to black and white. I just think, I think, I want to tell people about Florida because we were having real problems with the Everglades and, you know, the federal government was suing the state and, and I felt it was important to just, because people were excited about my, uh, the, the, the swamps and color, but they, you know, I didn't think they were really seeing it. So, so I took all, all my color work was two bread trucks full, probably about $400,000 took it to the dump. Yeah, I read that you destroyed it all. Was it yeah. just dumped, or did someone fish it out after you'd left? No, no, I waited there until <laughs> the guy ran over it with a machine. Goodness me. <laughs> uh, no, but I saved the negatives, though. I didn't throw the negatives away. Oh, okay. Oh, that's not so bad. So I, I still print some of those negatives in black and white. So, uh, Clyde, Clyde, there was a point there, then, that you're up until this point, you've been quite rightly focused on um you know make making a good living as, as you can from photography you know right. you, you've been churning out pictures for you know industrial concerns and uh, and to de decorate people's you know reception right. areas or, or what right. have you right and you find yourself in florida and you you find yourself exposed to the everglades and it, and, it, and is this a point at which you're starting to think well okay i've got i've got the art that i love I want to make great pictures, but there's also this real problem with the Everglades. I don't know if that's the time when they were being drained and the whole ecosystem was in danger. Is that that sort of time? Oh, it's been it's, they've been doing that for years. Right, because as as the buildings and communities have grown, yeah, but that started in 1900. You have right. to realize the Everglades was the first park established downhill from civilization. All the other parks, Yosemite, uh, Glacier, Tetons, were mm. all uphill. All that nice water ran down to the cities. Yep. And here we had all the shit rain down. And they, they, mm. they, when the government decided to do that in 1947, it was just after World War II. And the concept of, of uh, environment was not pretty much in their minds at all. But just that uh, President uh, Truman was really into Florida. 
and he saw the value in it. So they, they made the park. But didn't, they, he, didn't he uh, set, help set up part of Yosemite as well? Was it was that President Truman? Who, uh, I don't know. I thought it was uh, Roosevelt. Okay. Well, well Teddy, you know. Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy. What, what well, actually, <laughs> Yosemite was set up by Lincoln. Was it? Yeah. Lincoln established... Lincoln gave that property to the state for a park okay. in, in, in 1864. Right. Sorry, I distracted you from your... Yeah. From, let's focus on the Everglades and how your work developed yeah. into conservation and, and yeah. art in, so, in hand. So there, therefore, you know, I, um, I was just trying to tell people what... I, I, it took me four years... Being in Florida before I could, before I, before I discovered what Florida was about, it took four years. I mean, there's no mountains, you know. There's no big giant rocks. There's no, uh, you know, that dead stuff around here. Florida is alive. It's 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 a living, crawling organism. And it took a while to discover it. And I finally discovered, I met a fellow named Oscar Thompson, which was a fifth-generation Floridian. He was raised in the Everglades. And he took me out to, to see it and, and got me in the water. And so I was, it was really very exciting because a whole different world than uh, out west. A whole different thing. And nobody really had ever artistically photographed the Everglades um, because it's not, Visitor friendly. Mm. I've been I've been walking and photographing uh, Big Cypress where the gallery is since 1984, and I have never ever met another person. How many how many how many uh, parks can you say you've never met someone? Sure. Yeah. Not many. No. No. I don't. Well, maybe in Alaska. Yeah. Probably will find some, but uh, Rocky Mountain National Park. I was photographing this beautiful scene. Uh, probably five hundred people passed me. When I was photographing it. You know, I mean, you, you, you've been to Yosemite. You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. in August. <laughs> yeah, well, that's really stupid. But I know. Thank you. You don't never go. Never. <laughs> June fifteenth on, forget. Yeah, I know. Um, like I say, April's the best time. Yeah, April's the best time. But in the Everglades, you're not. You know, there aren't boardwalks to walk on. There aren't footpaths, I guess. So you're well, it, you're accessing it by canoe and you know no, waders. Well, eh? Mostly, no. You don't use waders, don't you? No, okay. gosh, no. You you, you fill you, you hit a hole and fill them up. You you drown. Oh right, okay. It's not see waders are designed for like streams that have rocks in them. All right, yeah. It's not designed for places you're going to fall in a hole. Right. I wear tennis shoes and shorts. Do you? I'd be a bit scared of things crawling up my legs and biting me. Well, at least you can feel them. <laughs> <laughs> what what sort of things could? What sort of thing? Are you not frightened of things? The only thing is biting you. The only thing really out there that's really upset me is uh, fire ants. Oh, yeah, I've seen those on TV. Yeah, yeah sometimes, sometimes they'll be floating on, on uh, some sawgrass and you actually run into them. That's not good. Huh. 
But no, I've never had a problem with an alligator or a snake. No. Not not in the woods. No. Well, that's good to uh, hear. And our gallery, when is when uh, after after the rain starts, probably in August, even all the mosquitoes are gone. I hate mosquitoes. Yeah, well, people come out to our gallery. You know, you're in Miami or you're in Naples, and you're getting inundated by mosquitoes. Come to our place out in the middle of the big cypress, and they have all this. They have their you know mosquito spray and. And I, I say, just wait to put, don't put it on right yet. Wait until they get a bunch of mosquitoes. And they come back from a walk and they say, you know, we didn't have any mosquitoes. What's, what's the deal here? Because <laughs> we have fish that eat them. We have a plant that's called uh, bladderwort. It's a carnivorous plant that eats the larva. In the summertime, it rains every day. So it washes the bromeliads out. So, it, it, uh, so they don't have a time to breed. Hmm. The, the worst time is is now, when it rains every seven to eight days. And it's still water. Time, it gives them enough time to breed. Right. So, so this this so and also May is really good for horseflies too. <laughs> I hate those as well. I've been bitten by one of those. I've been bitten by most things. Horsefly. I remember one of those landing on me. They're vicious things. They are. Goodness how about me. how about one day a hundred or two hundred of on you? Mm, uh, yeah, yeah, that's fun. Get, get blood all over you. You're not selling the Everglades to me, I'm afraid, Clyde. Sorry. <laughs> well, 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 that's, that's kind of good because it keeps people out. <laughs> well, t- we're talking about those 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 walks that you do, um, or when you mm-hmm. when you walk around, I should say, in the yeah. And I I saw a, uh, a something on YouTube, and uh, you were taking a chap around, um, and. And it was it was it was quite fascinating because of the, at first I was like quite shocked to see you just like walking through the water and I could tell you weren't wearing waders and I was like it's just it's just walked into the water and the guy the poor guy just had to follow him yeah and that's yeah, and, that, yeah. and that's it and uh, but one of one of the things that uh, I I can't remember his his, his name but uh, he was saying how it was hard underfoot. And uh, it wasn't muddy at all, and that was that was quite surprising to me. And, and yeah, uh, it, it, yeah, you have to realize that that Florida is actually um, a seabed, so it's like moral. It's it's, it's like a uh, like a, like uh, you're walking on uh, uh, coral reefs. So yeah. it's it's basically uh, very some of the areas. Well, it's when you walk in an area that you. Well, our walks that we take, we try to keep people in the same walks so we don't destroy anything. So all the mud is gone. Uh, so you, you have to, it's the, the hard, worst thing that can happen to you, you can sprain an a- ankle or something, you know. But um, now we had, we took President Carter and his family on a swamp walk, and he just had a great time. He was, he was just like, he was smiling the whole time. I mean, he was just having a ball. Well, he smiles a lot anyway, didn't he? I don't think I've ever yeah, seen him he, not smiling. Yeah, he's a, he's a great guy. Uh, Secret Service were a different story, though. They were, uh, <laughs> and did, did they have to wade through the water as well, the Secret oh, Service? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There was, oh, yeah. I think there was five of them. Oh, I bet they hated that. Well, was one lady that was, 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 was for Roslyn. I was keeping an eye on Roslyn because she I, didn't want, I, I was there to catch her in case she wanted to fall. But... Um, she, she goes in the walk and she says, I can't believe they're making me do this. 
you know, she's like six one, okay, big lady. And halfway through this walk, she says to me, you know, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. This is really great. <laughs> I mean, it, your, your whole mind changes a lot as you go through the walk because we don't take people through the gator holes anymore. We used to take people through gator holes, but we don't do that anymore. What's a gator hole? Well, the gators are. Oh, is it? Right. Okay. Well, that's good. Have you, but you've never lost anybody to a gator, have you? No, no, no. We've had, we, 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 were, so we were going through the, the back pond, which is pretty deep. And a, a couple of times a gator would pop up next to someone. And uh, we said, uh, don't think we ought to do this anymore. <laughs> Even though they, they, I'm sure the gator, they didn't, they didn't bother anybody, but I didn't want to, yeah. Uh, so we, we don't do that anymore. We take well, you've got, I see that you, you know, you, if you click on your, on Clyde's website, folks listening to this, which is uh, clydebutcher.com, there's a section which talks about the private guided swamp walks yep. and you've got a whole bunch of kids and all sorts down there. So I guess, you know, it's you know, safe oh, enough, isn't it? We, we have, we've taken, I don't know, at least 12,000 people through. Uh, these days, um, uh, uh, are you you or your colleagues, the people you work with, are, are you doing specific photography opportunities? With yes. Would you encourage yeah. large format photographers to come and do some yeah. Yeah. side picture work? Yeah, we have special events for that. Uh, right. they're, long, they're longer, three yeah. to four hours instead. And we take, uh, Scott takes you to areas that are, that are nice and we just stay there for a while. So you have a time to, you know, maneuver around and take pictures. Because on, on the swamp walks, we just walk. Yeah, and we every about every once in a while, we stop and explain the system to people. You know what's how this how this works, what this is about. But it's basically just an educational thing. But we do have uh, opportunities for we we encourage maybe three or four or five people to get together and uh, do a photo trip together. So that's 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 fun. A lot of people do that. I think what I'd love to do is. Um is staying your, in your swamp cottage, which has got a glorious sounding name. It, it's, <laughs> it, 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 is it really luxurious? It looks luxurious. It sounds like it should be like a rundown shack full of mosquitoes, but it looks lovely. Spend a few no, days it's, there. It's, and it's, then it's, We even have a bathroom. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> well, you mean you don't have to go in the swamp? We have 11,000 watts of solar with yeah. three Tesla batteries in it. So we don't even lose we don't even lose electricity when electricity goes out. I'd like to spend a few days there and then just yeah. spend a few days with you know shooting large format in the Everglades. That would be wonderful. Yeah, well, I, all my bird photo bird photography was done from my porch. Is it? Yeah. I have a I have a I have a a Pentax six seven, uh, mm -hmm. eight eight to twelve hundred millimeter lens, Oof. and uh, just sit there <laughs> on the porch and take pictures. Of course, what you're, what what, what air, I guess you what in, I, in air conditioning has to realize that's an in air conditioning too. Yeah, that's that's, that's okay then. Bird photography and air conditioning is pretty nice. What, what what I guess a lot of folks know about you in terms of uh, conservation and environmental awareness is that um, producing beautiful landscape prints that, uh, uh, and again, forgive me if I've misquoted you, but I wrote something down here um, that you want people to feel a connection when they look at your images mm -hmm. so you're looking at 
people to get emotionally involved in that area, which is a really good thing, I guess, for raising awareness. Um, right. How how are you? What what are you doing in terms of making that image? What to make people feel a connection? What are some of the things you're looking for, or some of the sort okay. of techniques you're using? The the basic technique is, I make the pictures large so you can't see them. Not so big that you're just fully immersed that it becomes overwhelming. Yes. So what you're doing is you're like an eight foot picture. Yeah. You should be standing four feet from it. When you stand four feet from it, you're the same angle of view that the lens was. Yeah. So when you start scanning that picture, you're there in the you're there in the scene. It's it's three dimensional. Yeah. And what I do when I point my camera, I say, where do I want someone to go? That's where I point my camera. So that they can you're looking to lead them in almost that you can fall into the image, you know, Correct. and follow the path through and be immersed in it. And when I do uh, pictures in, uh, say, like a, in, a, in a small stream, I the camera usually is about two and a half, three feet off the water. And yeah. so you feel like you, when you see, look at that picture, you feel like you're in a canoe. Yes. Can I ask you, there's one intriguing clip on YouTube where you're trying to get out of the canoe onto a stepladder. Uh, we're, we're just waiting for you to fall in, but I guess it's your wife or whoever's with you says, no, Clyde, you've got to come back in. It's far too dangerous. What, what were you trying to do? What possessed you to put a stepladder in the middle of the Everglades and try and get on top of it? Well, the problem is there was, in that particular area, there's no shallow areas to get in and out of the boat. Right. So I, I can't, it, it was, it was like four and a half foot deep there. I can't get in the boat. No, four I see. Deep. So it was just for, to enable you to get in and out. Yes, yes. Okay. Oh, well, and, that, and that area is, gosh, it's about six miles of old growth cypress. Yeah. Uh, there was uh, the first we first time we went there, uh, it was in May, and it was the lowest water it had been in 40 years. So these cypress trees were fully exposed. And we, we had a 100-foot measuring tape. And this one cypress tree we measured was... 53 feet in circumference. Wow. That was, a, that was, uh, it's, uh, it's just, it's magic when you're walking around. It's just magic. It's just magic. It's just, when you're in an old growth forest, there's something about it that. Well, it's, it's primeval, just, isn't it? It's, yeah, it really, you know, it really is. It's before just, time. Yes. I mean, this area, this area was probably hadn't been touched for, for a thousand years. Sure, yeah. Clyde, I, um, you, I'd like to it just exp for you to tell folks about some of your darkroom work in a, in a bit, but working working out in that environment with a uh, either a four by five or an eight by ten or a um, what's the other one you use? Twelve by. Uh, I, I shoot with a five seven eight was ten. It? 11, 14, and 12, 20. Yeah, well, either of those, working in those environments, um, you've got to be pretty disciplined. You can't be dropping stuff, can you? What What are some of the challenges, <laughs> some of the challenges that you've faced, maybe that you didn't quite expect when you first started and how you've overcome them? And Well, you know, to... yeah. Well, you know, you're always, I'm always in the water, so all my, yeah. my, my camera gear is on my back, camera, yeah. you know, you don't take it off. 
And then my wife carries a backpack with the film. Right. So she takes my camera out for me. Now I have a new a new eight by ten. This is called a Shenhu. Oh, I know. Yes. Yeah. It's a it's one of it's it's non collapsible. Yeah, with a fixed back on. Yeah, it's only six inches wide. Right. Yeah. So I could put that with the lens in my backpack. Hmm. So I pull the out of the camera. It's ready to shoot. All I got to do is put on the tripod and focus. It's ready to go. Yeah, you don't want to be fiddling with different lenses if you can help it in case you drop them. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, also, you don't want time-wise, too. Sometimes you, you don't have enough time to do, do a shot. You want to get that. Sometimes you just things come and go as, as quickly. But it's, it's And also, it only weighs eight pounds. Hmm. And that's the, uh, the Deardorff 810 weighs 17 and a half pounds. That's a lot of difference when you're out swamping. Yeah, and uh, and of course, so some of the times you have to kind of push the back pack up so it doesn't get in the water. Yep, that's the tricky part, not getting it dunked in the water. So it, it takes a lot of concentration. Um, now I do have I have to take a lot of pictures right behind the house. Um, there was a there was a shot I was trying to do. Well, we just the house was we just. Had the house finished the house and had the dark room. Uh, first off, we had the dark room in the house down in the swamp. We don't have it there anymore because it was too much chemicals. But uh, I would go out there. It was set up. The camera was only bottom of the Deardorff was about, I'd say, six or eight inches off the water. And it was in about two feet of mud. So I, I tried to get the tripod. I couldn't get the tripod down to rock. So I would take a photograph. And I'd go in and process the film. And then you could see where I had moved a little bit. And there's a double image. Hmm. Kind of like a, you know, a stereo shot. You saw a stereo shot. Yeah. Well, you get that on beaches sometimes, don't you? If you set your tripod yeah. up on the beach. And as the tripod starts to sink into the mud. Correct. Correct. So I, I went out there every morning for two weeks. And I would, because you had to do it just in the morning. It was a six minute exposure. You had to do it before the sun comes up so it wouldn't get, uh, you know, the daply light. Mm -hmm. And of course, the six minute exposure gave me this great reciprocity failure. And I did it for two weeks. I took out, finally, I took out some concrete blocks and hung it on the tripod. <laughs> yeah. Then I, I got my, my bubble cable release out. I was 10 feet away from it. I was still, everything in the car, I guess, is connected. So finally what I ended up having to do, get the whole thing set up, pull the, the dark slide out, and then sw swim up to the camera, turn on the shutter, and float in the water, counting to six, six minutes, and then go up, swim up to the camera and turn it off. So I wasn't touching the water the ground so i've learned how to do swap photography <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, it's not really that much of a transferable skill to many other places i wouldn't have thought uh no 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 so you, you've got these five by seven or eight by ten or larger negatives um but you're making these eight footprints on occasion what's uh, uh how does that work then tell folks about uh, how you're making these uh, huge prints well, back, I think it was in, uh, gosh, when was it? Probably uh, 1994. 
uh, I was uh, there was a printer in, in Miami. I was had, I had me had make uh, had a book printed, and he called me up one day and said, "Hey, I got a camera here. You want a cam? I got a camera here. Can you go, like the camera come pick it up?" So I said, "Sure." So I went over my little Toyota, and it was uh, a twenty-four by thirty-six <laughs> stat camera, <laughs> <laughs> weighed two thousand pounds. You know, uh, it was. Uh, so you know, it had a sixteen-foot rail, and then mm. had a, had a, a copy board. So I, we got it back. We set it all up, took the ground glass, all that threw away, put a piece of plywood in the back of it, uh, cut a hole. Uh, I had a Aristo uh, a, a, a lighthead made with variable contrast, blue and blue and and uh, green colors, uh, made for it, which was six thousand dollars. The the enlarger was free, but the light source was six thousand. We used a picture frame for the negative carrier. Yep. And uh, then I built a a big board on the the carrier, so the uh, I think our our thing is about nine nine and a half feet wide. The the printing board. So uh, it was it's really a neat machine, though it. You put I put test strips on it. Usually it takes to do a big print like that. Usually it takes at least three to four days before you're ready to print because you don't want to blow too much paper. So you put a test strip in the middle, get that down. Then you put test strips on the side, get that down. So you're using smaller bits of paper in key areas to determine, yeah, you know, yeah. wh where you need to hold back or dodge or burn those sort of areas. I suppose. Yeah, each test strip is about probably. Nine eight by tens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, then uh, you do a, a full print, and, and so you can see what you have to do. So that one you throw away. Um, so you you you're you're buying rolls of paper from. Oh yeah! Uh, oh yeah! yeah Ilford makes Ilford presumably. Yeah. Ilford makes fifty four inch paper. Yeah. And forty two inch paper. Yeah. We have those two, and. Um, but what the thing is about this machine is that the lens, the, the, the board that we're projecting on tilts up flat. So once you get it where you want it, you tilt it flat so you can roll the paper out nice and easy. Mm -hmm. And we have made the aluminum, like big aluminum frames that are welded together to hold it down. And then you flip it back up, do your exposure. You're burning and dodging. Sometimes it takes two people, three people to burn and dodge. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a dance. You're hitting yeah. my dodger. Come on, guy. Look, look out. You're hitting my dodger. You know. <laughs> and then you tilt the thing back up and take the frame off and roll it up and take it in the dark room. And then, and the then you're using you're using these big trays, aren't you, for developing? Yeah, yeah. we I built sinks. I, I built uh, each each tray is actually a sink. It's Four foot by five foot. They hold ten gallons of chemistry. Yeah. Uh, each tray has actually it's a sink because I have a drain set up in it, so you can drain the chemicals out and have piping underneath to control it. And the fix diverts to a uh, a machine that takes the the, the uh, silver out. Oh, okay. Uh, the the whole thing is thirty feet long, the sink. Uh, and then, but to process the big pictures, we use uh, water noodles. Use what? You know, so, forgive me, sorry. You know, you know what a water noodle is? 
I guess you don't even have oh, one. Oh, those things that you put in swimming pools. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I first used uh, clothes rods, wooden clothes rods. But those are wood, and they absorb chemicals, so you can't take them from tray to tray. Otherwise, you're gonna put, you're gonna you're gonna uh, kill the chemistry. So then I tried uh, PVC tubes, which is you know you, that doesn't collect chemicals. The problem with PVC tubes, it pushed the paper down to the bottom of the tray, and it got really tough sometimes to to to, to roll it, and your fingers would would create developing marks on the paper. But the water noodles float so the paper doesn't go to the bottom of the tray this floats it goes back and forth so is the print th these these noodles uh-huh <laughs> i'm trying to i'm sure i've seen this on video but for the life of me i can't remember are the prints floating sort of on resting on these things no they're they're rolled around them they roll the print, around the them. Print's eight foot long right i need to look wide. at I need, i'm sure i've seen this on the video i need to refresh my memory and then take a look the tray is only four foot wide. Yeah. Deep, deep. I mean, it's, it's five foot wide, but four foot deep. So you got eight foot. So we have to go back and forth. The problem was I didn't, I didn't understand. <sighs> Very frustrating. That the 54 inch paper, after you go through the developer, it's expanded widthwise two inches. It's now really? 56 <laughs> inch paper. <laughs> <laughs> and the tray because they're a half inch it's only 59 inches oh. so to, be, to wind that thing back and forth again it's a challenge without having to get it crooked or, you know it's, how many of you are in this dance with the paper just to make sure that it moves fluidly from you know into stop or if you're using stop bath or water and then fix it is it there must be at least must be at least two of you moving this yeah, there is one, one on each side. Each one on each yeah. side. Yeah. Uh, we we go into stop bath, which we usually do it for. We 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 use develop develop a minute, four minutes. I'm sorry, we developers four minutes. Yeah. So that, because that way, it all gets completely done. Because you know, when you when yeah. You I mean, up, you're probably you're probably looking at what two two and a half minutes. But if you're moving it backwards and forwards, you need to allow extra time to for that right. developer to get the blacks black, don't you? I guess right. Because also, you know, you put the paper in there, it, it doesn't all go in the same time. No. So you have to make sure it goes through. So we go into the end of the end of the stop, which is a minute. Then we go into two fixes. Yep. You have to have two fixes. I, yep. I asked. I said Kodak. So why, if we have fresh fix, you only need one. He says, nope, you need two. Yeah, period. I use two. Yeah. yeah. Then it goes into hypoclear and selenium, same time. Oh, do you? Together. See, now I, if my darkroom process would be a brief wash, um, and then it would be after fixing, and then it would be selenium, and then, uh, uh, and then I'd put it in the hypo bath, I think, or maybe a brief wash in the hypo, Kodak, yep. uh, hypo, yeah, but see if, you put, if you put the hypo and selenium in the same mixture, you you eliminate that step because if you don't mm -hmm. put the hypo clearing with the selenium, it'll it'll uh, uh, stain stain the picture. Right. But if you put the hypo clear with the selenium, you can do it at one time. Yeah, I get staining sometimes if I haven't done sufficient sort of washes in between. 
right, you get that why, you get that staining around the edge. The white border goes a bit murky, doesn't it? A bit. That, that's why colors. you don't. That's why you don't do it that way. Okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> well, also when you're doing it this way, uh, when you put it in the microwave for a test to dry it. Yes, I do that as well. That's an Ansel well, Adams trick. Of course. Uh, but you have to get an old an old microwave. These new ones that have this pointed thing, you have to buy an old one. Oh, no, I just use the one in the kitchen. My wife says, what are you doing? I said, I'm just putting the test strip <laughs> in. Um, and I put it on a low setting so it doesn't fry it. Occasionally, it comes out with a brown marking where I've overcooked it. But normally, it's yeah. just enough to assess the dry down, isn't it, on the highlights? Well, see, if you get an old one that's dangerous... The right. microwave goes through the whole thing evenly. Oh, well, I just use our kitchen one side. I'm sure it's fine. I think you're. I think yeah. you're making too much of this microwave business. Well, this one we use. I I bought it in 1984. Right. Still, still working. You have to, yeah. Every once in a while, change the fuse because it blows out. But it's a great tip. I shared. Uh, I shared a picture in our Facebook group a while back saying I've just got the test strips out of the microwave, That's, and I just said that, you know. Yeah. And people said, what, what are you doing? You and then someone it. asked me if I needed to do it with resin-coated paper. I said, no, you don't. But no. uh, it, there's a, I said, just take half, take your test strip, cut it in half, dry one half in the microwave, and then bring it back out, assess those highlights, and you'll see a difference. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And also, if you don't selenium tone at the same time, your blacks are going to change too. Yeah. you got you got to do selenium. uh for the, we we selenium tone all the tests, so we we, we everything is selenium tone. Yeah, that's a good that's a good that's a good point. Because I, I I think my because I always thought um, that that dry down effect that you get you know on uh, fiber paper certainly seems to be more uh, pronounced in the highlights, and so I never really worry about the blacks. But you're suggesting that well, um, look, well look at the blacks. Before, words, yeah, well, I will do now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The selenium brings the black up. Yes, that's 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 the one of the main reasons to tone with selenium is getting those blacks black. Sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. So yeah, it's yeah, it's uh, it's making those big prints is is quite a ordeal. Of course, you don't get everyone. Then you have somehow you've got to get it out of the wash. And dried without crinkling it. Uh, yeah, I mean, dry, drying just, you know, uh, what, my standard paper is that Ilford nine and a half by 12. And I've got one of these dry mount presses, Clyde, you know, that you can use for, uh, if you want to, you can use it for uh, mounting. But I'd use it just for flattening between some, uh, some of that heat resistant paper. Material and and it, it's a great way of flattening fiber prints. And I was looking at you hanging your huge prints up on your clothesline, and I think, well, how how are you how are you getting them flat? Because people do all sorts of tricks to make flat prints, but well, I've never managed to get a flat print just hanging it up. Well, the thing is, when it's on the roll paper, when we take it off, we we leave it rolled, and right. leaving it rolled takes the wrinkles out sometimes. Does it? Well, not all the time, but most of the time. And, uh, of course, then mounting that is a whole different world, too. Yes. How do you mount, if you want to, for an exhibition, are you mounting it onto foam core or something? Uh, or what? Uh, or... A gator, gator board. Yep. Uh, we, we mount it with uh, transfer tape, the uh, tape that's 
15. Is that the heat the heat resistant type the stuff that yeah it's melts. basically it's it's yeah you have a protective coating on each side of the it's 50 I think we use 50 60 inch wide tape right and um, you first you put a, a layer type on the gator foam which is fun to try to do that without getting any dust under it that's a whole different world. And then you have to then you have to laminate the print without getting any dust under it. So there's all kinds of places where you lose a picture. <laughs> yeah, you're certainly working hard for your uh, yeah uh, for your art. But but you have a five foot by eight foot fiber print. Not many people get to see those. Uh, and you have yeah. those on. You have those on display. Sure permanently well, we in your have, exhibition center or your get yeah yeah we have also we like for instance uh we had a show for indiana uh everglades show in indiana it, it got canceled but uh because of the virus thing but we have a, a show that's going in ohio of, of everglades uh <clears throat> in september so we'll have all those some of those large prints and and so they get to see that in a whole different world we, we've done we've done museum shows all around the country. In fact, we had a, a big show in the National Gallery in Prague in uh, 2000 with that nine-foot prints. Wow. That was quite a project getting it over there. Yeah, I was going to say, just the, the logistics of shipping must have been a challenge in itself. Yeah, well, just as they're getting it back with a challenge, it's still over there. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so Clive, that's what that. are the um, what are the challenges that face the Everglades these days? In terms, I mean, I'm thinking of climate change and all those sort of issues. What what sort of impact have you seen in your time there, in in terms of the threats to the Everglades? The same problem you have, people. Yeah. Um, too much shit, or that—that's—that's that's air shit, and I mean, because it run, runs downhill to the Everglades. It still, does it? Run down. Yes, it does. And, and the Everglades is a—you'd think, oh boy, it can grow better, but no, it's the Everglades is, is a, yeah. nutrient, a nutrient poor system. Yeah. And uh, when you get too much, it smells. When you get into an area where. It's it's uh, all the elements are correct. It's actually uh, beautiful. It's, it's, there's no smell. It's just well, there's a nice as a. Yeah, you get that uh, in some farmland areas. It's certainly in the UK, if they've used if they've been heavy in nitrates in sort of enriching the soil, and that washes into the rivers. Right. Uh, I think the process is called eutrophication. I seem to remember, but it's. It's a process. You just end with like slimy growth and things going rotten, and it's basically killing the environment, killing the water, isn't it? And making yep, it yeah. go. Yep. Well, also here it gets so bad that um, you can get sick from the, from the air. Right. Uh, it's just there's people have a tendency to um, they've always through time, some time forever. If you have a waste product, you just threw it away. There's too many people for that to happen anymore. Mm -hmm. But the habit's still there. Yeah. Just discard it. 
Um, Clyde, are you working with other artists and conservationists? Do you do you form uh, groups of artists and conservationists working together to raise awareness, or are you a, a lone voice, or are there others of you doing what you're doing to raise there's, awareness? There's, there's a few others, but basically, uh, I can't wait for other people. I yeah. just do it. Yeah. Um, like when, when I was introduced to the Everglades, Everglades problem was in 1988. I was doing an art show in uh, West Palm Beach. And this guy comes in the booth and says, wow, we got to have this in our, in our new building. Because people can see what the Everglades is all about. And he says, we're going to probably need about 2430 of 40 by 60s. I'm saying, wow, that's going to be a great sale, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then he says, You never quite lo- let go of that commercial head, have you? Except he says, but we can't pay for them. Oh, right. <laughs> so I, it took me a while. It took me about a month. And I call him up and I says, okay, I'll do it. So we did it. We did it, you know, hung them and everything. But by doing that, we were introduced to all the scientists, yeah. uh, the whole process. We were became a part of that uh, political com- uh, community. Yeah. And I learned what was happening. I, I, I didn't learn about the Everglades problems from Sierra Club. I got it, I learned it from the Water Management District because they, they were responsible for doing it. Yeah. Unfortunately, in the last... Ten years, we moved up here to Venice. So I've been really in in close contact for ten years. Yeah. So uh, I've been kind of losing. I, I'm on the fringes now. So we're working up here on projects like the, the springs and and the rivers up here. So, the, but the main project you have to work on is the global project. That's the project. Uh, all this other stuff is is nice for the temporary, but unless we solve the problem worldwide, it's not going to make any difference what we do. You did some stuff with Al Gore, didn't you? Did I see? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. He he was he's one politician that I've asked questions. And he's actually answered me. Really? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I've been with him a couple of times. Uh, and of course, Carter was so easy to talk to. We spent a couple of days with Carter. He was really mm-hmm. great. But photographers could do a lot more of, of visually uh, telling people the problems around the world. I mean, I mean, you take people. Photographers take pictures. What do they do with them? Um, and a lot of photographers uh, are doing it for for a hobby. But for some reason, if they want to give it to the pictures to somebody, they want to get paid for it. I don't have any problems working with uh, governments since they don't have to write a PO. I don't charge them anything. It's easy to work with them. Yeah. Mind you, I mean, everybody these days with this, all the unrest that's going on around the world at the moment, everybody's a photographer, aren't they, in terms of immediate news. And so things are just being shared sort of instantly, aren't they, with, with phones? Yeah, but they aren't effective. Well, they aren't effective. Uh, yeah. Particularly all this color work. Color yeah. work is just not effective. 
I mean, what pictures do you remember of the, of the Vietnam War? If you, what do you for us the Vietnam War and civil rights movement? Ooh, well, yeah, I mean that was Every, uh, everything is. Every, you you see the young II. girl, don't you, running along with? Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah. The guy shooting the guy, the guy in the head. Mm. Uh, the the monk getting burned. Yeah. Um, the dogs in civil rights uh, chewing on people. Uh, of course, we got that now too. We're working on. We're working back getting the sixties going going again here. Well, Clyde. Anyhow, we're going we, to we, we can we can we can well, analyze the world's problems to death. We, and I'm, I'm what what you're doing out in the Everglades is tremendous, and you know. You, You've you've got to raise awareness where you are. We can all, I think, we can all do our bit, and you 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 do a, a fabulous job by combining art, fine art, with uh, you know, with political and and cultural awareness and and environmental awareness, and you know the, the the trips you do around there, and and long may it continue that you continue to raise awareness and try and protect your corner of uh, you know of this wonderful planet. Yeah. We have a, a new book coming out on the Everglades. Coming out, it's it's uh, it's printed, but it's, we're waiting to get it bound and ship shipped to us. Yeah, I saw that, and uh, folks can go to Clyde's website and buy take place orders for a twenty twenty one calendar and the new book. And certainly, some of your older books are still available. I know out there, maybe not through your website. I don't know, but certainly, um, certainly, there's a few you, you've got. You've probably got half a dozen or so books out there, haven't you, Clyde? DVDs and stuff. Oh yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention: we didn't really mm -hmm. get into the to my digital work camera too much. Um, uh, I and all my digital cameras that I have or I have used, I use tilt and shift lenses, which brings me back to the large format concept. I mean, I just have to have them be able to rise, tilt, shift. Um, You're still looking for those same features on your digital stuff as that you were using before. Yeah, yeah. I figured out the lenses I use are the Canon tilt and shifts. Right. Uh, and I figured out a way of adapting them to any cam any camera that I've owned. I put those lenses on it. Go on, I've Simon. actually I have it adapted to my Leica, my M10 monochrome. They're adapted to that camera, which the Leica people says you can't do. Yeah. Oh, yes, you can without a shadow of a doubt. Um, well, what? Yeah. Well, what I do? It's a little tricky. I have a uh, Cambo makes a adapter from the Canon lenses to the uh, GFX uh, cam GFX um, Fuji. Fuji. You put the Canon lens on it, and this adapter, you could adjust the f-stop. Which, whatever rest up you want, then you push the you push the button and you set the lens, you set the f stop, and you turn it off and take it off, and it's set at f sixteen. Yeah. So now I can just put I just, so everything I shoot is f sixteen. Simple. It, it it is, and that that's uh, I mean that's absolutely the subject matter of uh, my my other podcast the classic lenses podcast and uh, it's it's interesting that uh, you're using a very modern lens but something I on on that show we talk about using adapting old lenses but the the principle is exactly the same and uh, it, yeah the flange distance is uh, going to be absolutely fine with that but you've you've highlighted the big problem with the Canon EOS lenses that uh, the aperture mechanism on there is completely yeah. electronic um, right. and uh, so you either 
there's only two ways to do well there's three things one you just don't bother with the aperture uh, two you use a, a smart adapter um, and that would allow the camera to talk to the lens but that isn't going to happen with a Leica um, nope. and uh, and then thirdly the way that uh, the way that you figured out there um, that uh, you you you, you um, trick uh, the lens oh, yeah. and uh, well, and then put well, it back on well also I've got uh, Pentex 645 uh, 35 and 75 adapted to the uh, Leica and I have a uh, a uh, RZ 75 shift lens adapted to Leica it, it has a 20 20 millimeter shift in both directions now the, now the the <laughs> I'm, I'll, I'll say you well I'll say RZ because we say RZ over here but uh, let's go with that go with RZ I say RB well but anyway. that, ah but that's different but uh, but the uh, there's, there's, there's RB and RZ they're the same I know I know camera. Yeah. yeah, but the the thing is that the 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 RZ lenses, RZ lenses, uh, don't have a focusing helicoid in the lens uh, because they have like a, a bellows arrangement, don't they? And, yeah, uh, but yeah, but the adapters you buy have have a have a helical. Right, I've I've not seen those, but that's uh, that's, that's oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, they have a helical for the uh, Fuji GFX, and they have a helical to the Canon. So then I take the Canon and put the Leica adapter onto the Canon. Yeah. No, that's good. <laughs> that's good. That's, that's, that's really good. And uh, um, we're going we're gonna to start um, clo closing things uh, down now. But I've just uh, back up, coming back from earlier in the show uh, sure. when, when I went quiet uh, to do some research. Um, and that was about the, uh, the big question about who, who brought out retrofocus first. Was that uh, the East German Zeiss or was that Angenou or Angenou? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'm absolutely delighted to say we're both right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're such a politician. Oh, yeah. 61? Uh, no, well, first, first, first thing, um, the first article I, I found uh, was by somebody I know well. Uh, his name is Shia Morrison, um, mm. and uh, he writes a lot of uh, historical information about lenses, and uh, he does most of his writing for casualphotofile.com. And mm. uh, he authored a, uh, a, an in-depth uh, article on the um, on the Flectagon uh, uh, back in April the seventh, twenty nineteen, um, in Casual Photophile, and um, what's going going through there? He talks about the history of it, and uh, Pierre Angenot and um, Zollner of, of Zeiss um, applied for the Retrofocus patents in the same year. Um, they oh. both in the, yeah they um, they they developed them independently of each other, um, and. The, red, the reason why I need, immediately thought of um, Angenot is because I knew that Angenot used the term uh, retrofocus, and mm. um, and the, the, I'm reading the article. Uh, it's they retro, it's, interesting enough. Retrofocus, the actual word retrofocus, had been used before by Taylor Taylor Hobson um, for one of their uh, reverse telephoto lenses, um, which is sort of a similar kind of thing. Um, right. But they uh, Angenot tried to actually trademark it for his lens. Um, but obviously he couldn't do because he was already out there and um, East German Zeiss had already, had already put 
put that thing out there as well but uh, interestingly enough the name sort of stuck with that design and uh, and also with the the west german uh, part of zeiss which is the zeiss that still exists today um they their version of it uh, became known as the distagon and uh, that's a phrase that's still uh, still in in use today i still have my my 20 millimeter reflectagon and i use it i, I use it on the uh, fuji gfx oh that's that's interesting and it and it uh, gives it full coverage over just the about sensor. yeah just about yeah uh, you know uh, this i could uh, start a whole new section of this podcast now no you couldn't <laughs> well my my canon my canon lenses have full shift on the gfx 100 oh well, i can i could easily believe that 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 doesn't surprise me at all um <laughs> And oh no, I've got to stop. I've got to stop because we could we could get uh, Clyde make another make another appointment with Clyde's assistant okay. and get him on yeah. your other podcast. Yeah, you're gonna to have to come on the Classic Lenses show, definitely. Yeah, um, I, I I've been doing this a while. Yes, yes. Um, we, we were on B and H with B and H, and David it was a picture of David there. Uh, you know, he was introduced to me. He had his Deardorff set up with a, a gold dot Dagor. And I said to him, well, I see you got your gold dot Dagor. And he says, how'd you know that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, everybody knows what a gold dot Dagor looks like. So just for folks listening, as we as Simon desperately tries to wrap up, you, you have just been involved in some online uh, B&H presentations, haven't you? And uh, folks yeah. can find those on YouTube. And um, uh, listen, optic, listen and watch Clyde. It's Optic, uh, tw optic 2020. Optic 2020. Go, um, put that into YouTube and Check look for day two. I think you're somewhere on day two, aren't you? Right. About four, four hours minutes, in. Four hour point, yeah. There Hopefully one of these days I'll have it broken apart. Yeah. It was interesting. It's basically, I, I, I did it. It's the first time I've done a presentation quite like that. I started, the first thing I opened when I was 10. Then I jumped to now. Then I jumped back to where I started again. It was kind of an interesting way of presenting things. Well, we'll look forward to giving that. I'll certainly look forward to giving that a listen um, in the next day or two. Yeah. You can see see all my crazy cameras. There's, there's one yeah. shot there of of all the cameras uh, I have. I have the twelve twenty uh, Wisner, eleven fourteen eight by ten five seven Deardorff, four by five Wisner, my model camera, four by five pinhole, and my Kleidowide. We've got a friend of the show called Wayne Setzer, and we'd, um, there's no reason why you should know him, Clyde, but we'd have to. it would be fun to get you two both on the podcast at the same time, although we'd probably have to set aside about 10 hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah, well, uh, I'm both basically and mostly into wide-angle lenses uh, in the large format. You know, I've got almost probably almost every – not everyone that's ever been made, but also all the uh, wide, uh, wide angle, uh, large, large format, from uh, the two ten uh, Super Simar down to the thirty five millimeter Rodegon, Rodenstock, well, Rodenstock Grandagon. I was so just I, looking for a, I was just looking for a Rodegon one oh five lens for my six by nine nine lenses in in larger lens but that's a different story well which for two and a quarter three and a quarter uh for um six well i'm in centimeters aren't i so six by nine whatever that is in uh old money 
uh, a good a good Nikor will cover that. Yeah. A, a, eighty mil eighty millimeter. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, I have an I have a an eighty Nikor. I'll have a look and see if it will get the coverage. Sure, it does. Okay. Well, save me some money. Well done. I'm glad I spoke to you. <laughs> because you're not doing eight foot prints. It, well, that's the smaller, true. The smaller the print, yeah. the bigger the circle. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah. Right. Good. Well, on on that note, um, okay. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say, uh, Clyde, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Well, it's been fun. It's fun. It's, you know, it's kind of like uh, it's there's oh, in where I'm living now in Venice, Florida, there's hardly anybody to talk to about cameras. You know, it's this it's particularly large format. Um, there's a little bit in Florida, but not much. Well, you've got 29 other shows to go and listen to, Clyde, in your days of lockdown to... Um, okay. Go. <laughs> yeah, okay. That sounds well, quite so enthusiastic. Yeah. You've got lots of other shows. And you can... And, and our, our, I don't know if you're a Facebook user or not, but we have a great group uh, of very interactive people, many of whom have been on the show, and we're chatting about large okay. format pictures, gear reasons for doing it and all sorts of things and it's a very it's a I'm great sure, place to I'm hang sure, out i'm sure kayla has all the facts to where i can find it all yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely so your um places where people can find you we've um we've mentioned uh your website uh but i think that's that's what mention it again uh, right it's uh clydebutcher.com all one word um you also have an instagram account um, I've noticed here, which I'm now following you, and uh, okay. uh, which is just type in Clyde Butcher, and they will find you. It's the man with the beard. I mean, you can't yeah. miss him. <laughs> you know, yeah, he's yeah. in with a large format camera. Yeah. So and we have we have, a, we have a Facebook account. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've liked that earlier, and I'm just following you on Instagram. We 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 have usually about 140,000 on that. I don't know how many we have on Instagram. So uh yeah, and there's some great stuff on there. Unfortunately it's tiny of course, but that's Instagram for you. But it's a good way to get yeah. uh, get the message out there. Um right. So um other other things. Um no emails this week. Um and that, I think that's just about it actually. Um, so, uh, Andrew, have mm. um, you got any final shout outs or no, not really. Okay. Not so week. outside of this podcast, how can people follow the things that you do outside of this podcast? You'll find me on Twitter and, uh, Facebook as, um, well, certainly Twitter is Warboys snapper. I think Facebook is just me, isn't it? Andrew. Bartram, I think. I don't know. Well, you just go to the group, don't you, really? Yeah, just just to the group. And in, but Instagram, I'm Warboys, uh, Warboys Snapper, and uh, I quite like using Instagram. And every other week, most every other week, I'm helping to host the other podcast, the Lensless Podcast, and that's going strong. Um, although it is every two weeks now, and we're up to about show eighty, I think. So if you're into pinholey things, you can, well, find I, me, I, you can find me there. I suggest to people who want to learn photography, learn pinhole. Because you, you, you have to perceive what you're photographing. Yeah, you do. 
It's really good, really good learning tool. I would think it's a great way of photographing the Everglades as well, really, because you're you're really capturing. It's a it's a really good way to capture time for someone like you who loves, you know, the effect of reciprocity failure that that long exposure that you're forced to do would be even longer with pinhole, I guess, wouldn't it? I think six minutes is long enough. <laughs> yeah, you might be like a couple of hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, what about you, Simon? Where can folks want to, if they want to go and buy a lens cap? Uh, uh, oh, find well, <clears throat> if, they, if people want to buy a lens cap off me, then just go to simonforstephotographic.co.uk um, where I'm making lens caps. And um, there's uh, the Kuto Camera Company in uh, in Massachusetts on eBay as well. Uh, there's also uh, reproducing my lens caps for the uh, for the North American market as well. And I've actually just Ooh, I didn't realise you were going international. Oh, in I'm your... fully international. Yes, yes. Hmm? Yeah, produced under license uh, yeah. in in Massachusetts. Uh, but you're producing lens caps and rear lens caps for hard to find. Um, lens caps aren't you for cameras that perhaps that's, it's not that's, so easy to build that's that's right in the main it's things that you you can't just go and get one from china um, mm. it's this you know things like we meant, mentioned earlier um clyde mentioned earlier about miranda cameras i, I make uh lens caps for miranda uh, mount which is an interesting mm. unusual mount actually that one um mm -hmm. it's got four 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 fins on the uh on the body cap on the lens cap i should say um but uh but i'm also moving slowly uh into doing some stuff with lens boards as well um, yeah i've but, been watching uh, that with interest yeah there's a, a few things to get right on that one before they they they're good for prime time but uh, watch your space lens lens boards will be coming soon well i might chat with you because that uh, 300 mil indostar lens I, I need to shove it further forward really yeah I, I think the lens the front lens standard on my toyo is 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 man enough for it i think but at some point i'll talk to you about that but uh, anyway Enough of your uh, pl shamelessly plugging your business. <laughs> well, you asked. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so apart from that, uh, I'm on Twitter, Simon4. Uh, that's F-O-R, not, not the number four. Um, I'm on Instagram as uh, Simon Forster Photographic. You can hear me almost every week on the Classic Lenses podcast. Um, and that's, uh, I think that's, that's enough for me. Um, I think that's got to be enough, hasn't yeah, it? It has. So, uh, Clyde, um, again, it's it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Okay, help! I didn't confuse everybody. No, no. not at all. Well, you, you you've given us tips. I mean, you've certainly there, there was definitely things that that you've given me di direct uh, knowledge on that I'm going to take away from uh, today, and I know that happened okay. with Andrew as well. Did. But well, you know, it's 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 a shame to lose all the knowledge that I have over the sixty years. You know, it's a lot. I have I have a lot of knowledge, and that's that's one reason I do these things. So maybe it doesn't get all all get lost. Yeah, yeah. No, that's and that's you know, it is it is one of the reasons why why we we make these shows because we want um, certainly in the, specifically large format photography, but photography in general, we want to make it accessible to as many people as possible, especially you know people doing doing stuff on film. I mean, photography as, as a whole, it's very accessible. Um, a lot of people are quite scared of doing stuff with large format photography. And, you know, the principles are, are pretty much the same as they are with almost any other kind. It's just different things. You've got to put things into a different order, that's all. Well, you, you get larger than four by five. Other things that come in. 
<laughs> when you when you have, have an eight by ten, when you pull a dark slide out, the film vibrates for for probably thirty seconds before it settles down. The temperature change. Right. So there's all kinds. Of, uh, Twelve by twenty. Half the film will buckle. You're not doing it right. You know, I mean, during the exposure. So there's, when you go to large, large format, there's all kinds of tricky stuff. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. So uh, anybody who's just that's thinking about doing large format, it's okay with small, <laughs> large format. Don't worry about it. And then when you get good yeah. at it, you can be like Clyde. And do yeah, the point, point, point and shoot four by five is fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'll, st I'll stick with that if that's yeah. all right. Okay. It's, it's, you know, uh, it's 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 a it's a really a great format, and uh, for most people, uh, doing that that will blow. You can make a from a four, good four by five negative. You can make a great thirty by forties. Yeah. No problem. Right. Well, on on that note. Um, we're gonna we're gonna go. Where our email address is largeformatphotographypodcast at gmail dot com. Um, the theme music, which is probably playing out at this moment, is uh, it's called Two Finger Johnny uh, by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech dot com. Um, and that's it. So I hope you've enjoyed uh, listening to the three of us uh, today. And uh, we should be back in about two weeks. So goodbye. Bye. Okay. okay bye bye.